Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Form 3 Engineering Podcast. This is the tech series here and I'm your host Kevin Holditch and today I've got Ash Jeffs. He's a big player in the Go open source community and he's created the open source project Benfos, which is a high performance stream processor and he runs the project full time. Welcome Ash, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, not bad, thank you. Not bad. So how did you come to create Benfos? How did it come to be? So I was, um, one of my early gigs was working at a company called Datasift, where our business was essentially a data broker of social media data for a bunch of different uh, social media companies. So the, the big one was Twitter. Essentially what we were building was this data processing infrastructure on top of that. So it was things like filtering and historics queries. And I started, I was fairly green when I started there. I was working on the C++ team, which were responsible for the filtering parts. Over time, you know, we had a bunch of different teams and they were very autonomous. So we had all these different tech stacks going on at the company and lots of experimentation with different languages. And then our CTO, so it's probably about 2014, I think, started playing around with Go as a potential candidate for like new projects and potentially to replace some of the old stuff we had lying around. We had a lot of PHP services. So um, I kind of joined him. He gave a presentation and I was like, oh yeah, Go's pretty cool. Um, so we started um, experimenting and just kind of dabbling with it a bit. And then we kind of started rolling it out throughout the company as, um, as a replacement for all deprecated services and it was going pretty well it was pretty fun I, I enjoyed working on that in my spare time more than c++ mostly just because when i'm mucking around in my evenings i value my time a bit more so i don't want to be mucking around with c++ stuff so it just ended up becoming my my default and then uh we, we went through this phase where so the platform grew to this massive huge spaghetti of microservices and because we had autonomous teams, we had loads of different queue systems and, and ways of messaging between these services. It was very specific. So some people were using Kafka um, and obviously people were using different versions of Kafka because why not? And then a lot of teams were using zero MQ because uh, they wanted the super low latency, high throughput stuff. And it was just getting really complicated. And then we went through, uh, basically Twitter cut us off. So our biggest source of data ended their contract with us and uh, it was pretty obvious we were going to go through like a, a massive restructure. So I was going to stick around and essentially inherit all of these C++ services. I didn't really fancy that. Don't blame me. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Well, I, I didn't really have a solid plan for, for what I was going to do because obviously the, in the short term, you know, you, you're just going to have to make do. We had some really cool plans for the company. So we had all these cool projects to work on that were kind of greenfield. Um, and a lot of that was in Go. So I was kind of helping out with that. But then we still had the baggage of the, C++ services lying around, the kind of assumption there was that they would be difficult to replace because they're these super high performance components and um, we don't really have any alternatives. So I um, kind of started this evening project to, I, I kind of targeted the simplest component that we had, which is just this kind of bridge. It was essentially reading from a zero and Q socket and then writing to a zero and Q socket and you could configure it to do different things. So it would like um, subscribe or um, publish and you could do um, pub sub and push pull and different socket types and then you could configure which sites you're going to bind from so it's kind of useful to just stick in between different components during platform migrations and it had a buffer in between as well so it would do disk persisted buffering uh, so you could disconnect a component downstream and not put back pressure um, on upstream components so I figured that's like probably one of the simplest components we had so if I could make a side project that would replace that in Go, then maybe that would be a good starting point to kind of demonstrate that we don't have to have this in C++. 
yes, we've got these constraints on, you know, we need to have a certain amount of throughput and, you know, it does need to be fairly low latency, but we can get, a, there's a wiggle room there, right? You know, you can, yeah. you can get away with, um, it's not going to be quite as fast. It's just going to be fast enough and easier to maintain. So I started this project and my, my interest was kind of comparing it to the C++ version in terms of performance. But then I also kind of figured eventually we're going to need to do quite a lot of platform migration as these teams change that's going to involve um, sort of temporary solutions where, you know, maybe you've got three services that are kind of chained together um, in this complicated way and they communicate in very specific ways and we want to reorder them or move them around. And these are going to be jobs that, you know, might span just a couple of weeks or a couple of months, but that they're just going to be temporary. And then eventually we're going to use that as a stepping stone to getting somewhere else with the platform. So we're doing these massive uh, structural changes. Um, so I figured eventually I'm going to want to be able to access different queue systems with this thing. So um, and also do like um, transformations on the data because it's not enough to just bridge different things. We were going to have to um, configure how different messages were getting translated, and like th that started off with just uh, sometimes we were writing say you know three JSON payloads over Xerum queue as a multi-part message. You know maybe in the new version which is sending a single message over Kafka, which means we've got to have this enveloped JSON payload, which essentially combines the three parts. So you've got to be able to do these kind of like basic transformations um, and it needs to be configurable and it needs to be something that we can just um, stick around. So that's kind of where it started. Okay, so basically what you're saying is you needed a, a way to map from one queuing technology to another in a configurable way, mm -hmm. but you weren't necessarily going to keep that solution around forever. So you wanted it just to, be, to spin it up, configure it to map from A to B in this way. And then maybe a month down the line, you're going to throw it away. And it was natively going to talk because you're going to upgrade service A to use the same technology or something like that. Is that kind of the main use case? Yeah, exactly. Was? Yeah, it was originally, yeah. So I, that was kind of my, <laughs> that was sort of my pitch. Because I obviously was talking about this a lot in the office, but we um, we didn't really have the time to test it and deploy it because obviously there's a lot of other stuff going on. Yeah, I just carried on working on it in my spare time. And what I would do is whenever we would do some sort of migration, it would require development effort and then some really complex deployment strategy. I would kind of take note of what would this thing need to do hypothetically if we were going to use that instead to do that particular thing, um, and would that have saved us any time? Like, would it have been easier that way? Um, and what kind of eventually happened is it just sort of grew over time. And then while I was pitching this thing at the company, I was trying to get buy-in. I was trying to get people to sort of get excited about this thing. And obviously, if everybody else is super busy, it's really difficult to do that. But um, eventually, it got to the point where it was like, look, it's, it's basically as fast as this other component. Let's just try and deploy it. And we got a bit of testing on it that way. And then that's your foot in the door. <laughs> Essentially, I've got them to adopt my open source project. Now, now I can start talking about the other things it does and what else we can do with it. And then, yeah, it was just this gradual little side project. I mean, really, my my goal with it was to get to use Go instead of C plus plus. Yeah, I can kind of see why you wanted to do that. It was interesting you said earlier on that um, maybe thought it wouldn't be as fast because. A lot of people seem to say, I know probably in C++ you can get, you've got tighter control on memory and stuff like that, so possibly you can get better performance. But I know one of the original reasons that Google built Go was you can write pretty fast code that's 
like fast enough in most cases, but it's much easier to write correct code. Whereas in C++, I think for those of us who have dabbled in C++, you always have these, I say always, very often you have these memory leaks that can be very hard to track down or it's very hard to use memory correctly in C++. Um, that's kind of a lot of vulnerabilities are found through bad use of memory and stuff like that. So coming to the Go world, did you very quickly find that it was easier to write correct code in Go and was it as performant or was C++ still more performant? So you definitely feel immediately the, uh, so the anxiety that you get with C++, if you've got a lot of threaded code in C++ and you're passing references around, um, every time you, you make a change, you can test it as much as you want, but you, you know in the back of your head that this thing, you haven't really tested it until you've deployed it because what usually ends up happening is, you know, it'll run for a couple of weeks, maybe months. And then, mm -hmm. you know, if, if the software is big enough, there is a seg fault in there somewhere. It's just a question of like, at what point is it going to arise? And you can see it. We did, we had some, some issues with, um, seg faults and, uh, memory leaks and things. Um, nothing that was operationally difficult to deal with. It was just, you know, it, it ruined the sleep of one of our operations team um, and I was I was okay with that but yeah when when we kind of moved to go I mean it's difficult to say because obviously performance can be measured in a bunch of different ways but we I mean the, there was definitely a performance hit um, there was you know you, you're not getting quite the latency that you could with C++ and it's, it's difficult to say how much of that is due to the mm -hmm. garbage collection and how much of it is just because you refactored it so it doesn't quite work the same way um, because obviously I was I, it wasn't a like for like service I was adding in new stuff uh, as far as that bridge was concerned because originally it didn't really care about delivery guarantees it was just pushing stuff over tcp sockets so i had to add in um, transaction-based resiliency so that when we do connect kafka in and kafka out we know we're getting um, strong at least once delivery guarantees so it wasn't a like for like comparison but what i can definitely say is there was no impact in terms of operational cost um, and it didn't degrade the platform in any way. It was a, you know, there was, there was no real noticeable difference in deploying this thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was probably, I mean, when you, when you're just writing data from one socket to another, the, the, there wasn't really much difference. It was more when you're doing, um, transformations on top because the JSON parser, you know, might be something like that. It's, it's running a little bit more efficient, um, or the memory management is a little bit tighter. Is Benfoss like a plugin-based system then? So we talked about that it can bridge different message brokers to other message brokers. So um, is it kind of completely configurable so I can configure like SQS to NATs, which is certainly something that we're going to be doing in Form 3 because we're looking to migrate from SQS to NATs. So would something like Benfoss help us in, in that migration so we can migrate some of our services to, say, NATs, and then we can use Benfoss Benfoss to bridge from SQS to NATs. So those new services don't need to know about the SQS world. Um, and with that configuration, can you do projections as well? So you can take a message from say SQS and transform it to a different structure in NATs. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's pretty much exactly what it's, what it's for. So it's got, um, it's got a load of connectors compiled in. So, I mean, if you just pull it as, as like a Docker image or something, then it, um, you should be able to write a config that does most of what you want. Um, but it's also pluggable in the sense that if you, you know, if you have some custom behavior that you don't want to um, share um, or it's not particularly um, easy to solve it with, with the configuration tools that are there, 
then you can kind of compile your own version of it and, and add whatever bits you need. So you can add like um, different connectors uh, and also transformations and things if you wanted okay. to. That's really cool. So how did you design it in such a way then that that's kind of abstracted away? Because I know in Go, you can have like interfaces. Um, so how do you design like an interface that is kind of broker agnostic or did that end up being quite a clunky interface or how would, how did that design go? Um, I started with the I started with the worst case scenario in terms of building an API, like the the most complicated way of writing uh, a sort of messaging generic interface. So the on the consumer side, when you're reading from a queue, um, if you're going to wrap some um, client library for for say like Kafka, um, then the way that you have to construct that connector is that it passes so it can pull a message and then what it writes to the next component is that message and then also the function okay. that it needs to call in order to acknowledge it. Um, and then that gets pushed all the way down the pipeline. And and all the components, the sort of the, the interface that gets exposed is channel-based, but that was a pain. So the the re, like essentially the problem that I had there is is most libraries you kind of you call a function um, to pull a message through. Um, and nowadays, maybe not when I started this project because context didn't mm -hmm. exist back then, but nowadays you give it a context. So you would say, I want to do a thing and this is going to tell you how long I want to wait for it. And it's a very intuitive way of dealing with those kind of things. Um, and then if you're passing stuff over a channel, um, it can kind of complicate stuff. And there's also things like metrics, um, logging, reconnects, um, not all libraries kind of match on those things. Some libraries take care of a lot of that stuff for you and some of them don't. So what I ended up doing is the channel-based interface is the, is the super custom one. If you're gonna write um, if you're gonna write a connector and you want full control over exactly what's happening, then that's the one to pick. But what I've sort of done is I've, I've added in these wrapper types that you can implement a, a simpler um, synchronous API where you define like a, a read um, method, for example, and a, and a disconnect. Um, and then that gets wrapped by this thing that, that handles the metrics and the channel-based okay, communications for you. So I take it at the very sort of simple level, your thing that's, say, reading off SQS, it's got to um, read the message, pass it on to the next component, say, NATS, then wait for an ACK back from NATS and then go to SQS and then delete the message. So... Um, is that kind of the implementation that would happen on both sides and then the channel kind of connects the two? So you basically read a message, call the next component, wait for it to act back and then acknowledge the message on the kind of consumer side. Yeah, so I mean, originally um, originally I was doing it through two different channels. So I had a, I had a okay. message channel and then I had a response channel because I, I was fairly dogmatic about I didn't want components um, writing on channels that they didn't own. So in order to do that, you couldn't pass a channel through um, your uh, right channel, like a, a response channel through the, the right channel, because uh, then you know, you've got something writing on it and doesn't own it. But I ended up scrapping that because you end up in lockstep. Um, obviously, one super important thing is if you're going to do CPU scaling and have multiple messages in flight is that if a component uh, pulls something and then has to do some action after the acknowledgment has occurred, so you imagine you um, you pull a Kafka message and you write it, uh, you push it downstream, and then at some point it gets written somewhere, 
and the acknowledgement comes back, you want to commit that particular offset. Um, but you don't want to have to be waiting that entire time. What you want to do is you want to set that whole thing in motion and then start pulling the next message and push that through and then another message and push that through. And um, yeah, I ended up just making it so that you you push a, a channel along with the message down this channel of channels um, and then a different goroutine potentially could could get spawned. Channels all the way down. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Channels all the way down. Cool. So I think a lot of people maybe be envious in the position that you're in where you kind of start this this project and it's kind of got really big. You've got like over 2,000 stars on GitHub. It's got a lot of traction. And now you're kind of doing it full time. So how did that kind of come about? You ended up like leaving this other company and doing it full time? Yeah, so it kind of started in... Um sort of three different phases, I guess. The first one is, is trying to get your, you know, your hobby project to get adopted by the place that you work. And then that was kind of my way of getting paid to an extent to work on this thing. Um, I was only working on it a very small amount of my time there. And then the second phase was just trying to grow that adoption within the company. So trying to solve more and more problems and it's quite a difficult thing because obviously you you have the foresight of, you know, you're at that company, you can see what problems are coming around the corner. Mm-hmm. So what I would do is I would try and solve that problem preemptively on my open source software so that when it comes to having to solve it as a team, I can just be like, hey, I can already do that. Let's uh, let's use this open source software that uh, came out of nowhere. And, you know, I just kept trying to sort of foster that. So, I mean, really, you kind of, it's it's a... It's it's an exchange because you're getting you know the company's obviously benefiting from the software and I'm I'm sort of working overtime to to try and get this thing and then the bit for me is that I get to work on this thing um, as my job yeah it's it you know the adoption slowly grew over time and um, then we happened to get bought by a bigger company and as it turns out you know th- before we were you know a few different fairly fragmented teams with different tech stacks or we got bought by a company that was essentially that on a larger scale where they were geographically separated teams and they were much more separated Um, and they were using a lot of uh, AWS services so um, we kind of we essentially got gobbled up by this company and then uh, we I sort of took it as an opportunity to try and grow this software and sort of show people hey you know we're not just coming with uh, this platform, we also have this cool tool. Um, why don't you consider using this? And I, I basically spent a, a year or two kind of evangelizing that um, project, and and you know people started using Benthos in their teams. And then um, my job became more and more about supporting not just my team and our use of it, but then also all these other teams and the stuff that they wanted. Um, and yeah, that that reached the point where you know I could be spending all my week on Benthos, or it could be you know a small amount, and you know maybe I'm working on something else. Um, there was still C plus plus at that point that I was working on, so okay. I didn't quite fully get rid of it. That's probably quite an interesting kind of position that you're in because Benthos is starting to kind of get quite big. I imagine people are using it outside of the company as well because it's kind of growing on GitHub. So how do you kind of balance off, like, because I notice when projects kind of get big on GitHub, you have the community trying to push it in certain directions, like adding issues, contributing, trying to contribute PRs, and you're also internally trying to take it in a certain direction to solve your company's problems. So how do you kind of contrast the two, or was that hard, or 
Um, do you find yourself pushing back on people's PRs or do you just let it organically go in whatever direction the community wants it to? Um, it's fairly organic. I think the the privilege of the type of project that it is, is that there's very clearly defined types of component, but they're completely isolated. So there's um, there's obviously inputs and outputs, there's processes, and then there's um, you know, a concept of a cache, which... Um, can be utilized by various of the components. So if people want to push it in a particular direction, it ends up usually just being they want to add a new component. Um, and if it doesn't fit in with one of those core blocks, then it's like an obvious, okay, well, we just can't, like, right? It's not just a, a fundamental, you know, that's not something that fits with this project. It's more of a, we, we just can't uh, support that right now. But to be honest, for the most part, because it's such a generic project, most features that people come up with, it's, it's just a question of, you know, how we want to implement that. And I, I suppose what you're doing at every step of the way is you're trying to implement stuff in a way where you're not um, kind of developing yourself into a corner where that feature ends up limiting what else you can do. But to be honest, it's not, that's not really something I've had to um, struggle with yet. Uh, most, most features that people want are kind of a a no-brainer like it, it it just fits and and you know somebody's already using this project for its intended purpose and it, it they just want to kind of extend it to the other stuff that they do um but yeah there's definitely um a you you got to be good at triaging uh issues because there's obviously bugs which i i generally try and deal with a bug the day that it gets raised okay um if it's something that i i know how how to solve like if, if i've already got an idea in my head of you know where that issue is and and what it is. I'll try and solve it that day. Otherwise, um, it ends up being something kind of bigger and maybe more subjective. Um, and that those those can go on the backlog sometimes. And then, obviously, features. If it's a significant feature that's going to be um, a big change, then you know I'll get to it if it makes sense at any point. But if there's if there's small little additions that people want that already fit with what the project's doing. I also try and deal with those pretty quick because at, at the end of the day, that's that's what it is as as a as a tool. It's the fact that it's got all these different features added on. Uh, so you know, if if you're missing stuff, then it ends up becoming an issue for people. So it's kind of a bug in itself. So do you write all the changes yourself, or do you get many sort of good contributions? Um... Yeah, I've had a, I've had quite a lot of good good contributors. Normally. Uh, it's somebody who's using it for a particular purpose. So they have um, they have a goal. They need it to do a certain thing, and you know they'll help out. And then you know you, you're probably not going to see them again for a while. And you know obviously that's fine. You know people people contribute as much as they can. Um, I, there's there's a few people who come by fairly often to uh, to add stuff in. I don't have anybody on call right now that I could ask to do something I don't think no nobody else other than me is 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 working on it regularly as as part of their job okay so people kind of dip in and do bits as as they need them and add features to it and then kind of flutter away again yeah um I'm actually interested just circling back round to the whole C++ uh language that you started with how do you kind of contrast moving from C++ to go because on the last episode we talked about we had sort of Andy and Johan and we talked about moving from Python to Go and their experiences of adopting Go. So I think that's something that listeners would like to hear about. Like, how is it going from C++ to Go? It's very different. So, I mean, I, I think I kind of 
see myself as um, I'm, a, I'm a projects kind of person. I, I like dabbling with languages, but more as a uh, way of building something. So I'm much more centered on I have a thing in mind and I want to make it. It doesn't really matter how I go about doing that. Um, and for C++, you've got a lot of different ways of doing the same thing. And there's a lot of foot guns uh, in the language, lots of ways of um, messing up without realizing it until far down the line. So th there's always this constant anxiety in, uh, I mean, any, any language where you're, you're managing the memory yourself to an extent is going to give you that, um, especially, you know, I, I loved messing around with um, concurrent programs um, and doing loads of cool async stuff. So for me, C++ was even more dangerous because, you know, you're throwing memory around all over the place. And uh, obviously there's going to be race conditions there somewhere because I'm not, I'm not perfect yet. Um, whereas obviously Go was mm -hmm. exciting because a lot of that stuff is baked into the language. So not only is there a lot of um, simplicity and a lot of anxiety kind of taken away, but um, you know, a lot of the cool things that I had to keep reinventing over and over again um, are just a, a core part of the language. So you've just got you've got a common language for describing how you know channels work and select statements um, and go routines. So I mean, it was um, to me, it was it was refreshing. It was you know, I, I can get my head down and focus on uh, features a lot more. To be honest, though, I, like originally, I. I was holding up for Rust. I was I was following both Rust and Go as a as an admirer, waiting for them to get to version one. And then Go got to version one, and I was not interested. Um, I w I wasn't particularly bothered at all, and I was like, yeah, I'm, okay, that's cool, but you know, I'm I'm gonna wait for my uh, for my Rust to come through. And because um, I was in the mindset of you know I I do you know low level programming, I do fast stuff. Um, I don't work with garbage collectors at all, um, but what I would do, my, my habits were I would work with C++ and I would consider myself a C++ developer. But if I was ever going to build something in my spare time, I would do it in JavaScript or something quick and easy where, you know, I can, I can just slap something together. And I think the reason why I was drawn to go um, so dramatically, I mean, I basically went from not interested at all to this is the language and I'm never going to touch anything else um, except maybe Rust. Um, but the, the main reason for that is because it basically just took over my evenings. If I was going to do anything at home, I would just do it with Go. And it was the quickest way of building something. It was the quickest way of um, trying an idea out. And yeah, it just, it just dominated. It, it was fun. It was, you know, it was fun to um, slap stuff together. And it basically replaced all scripting languages. And um, I, was, I was messing around with Node quite a lot at the time. And I, I basically just stopped that entirely because, you know, I've got Go now. I don't need any of that stuff. I think that seems to be the common consensus in that Go is so lightweight and it just kind of gets out of your way. And it just, like you said, you can throw something together really quickly, but also you can use it for sort of serious projects. Um, so it's kind of good on sort of both ends of the scale. Um, mm -hmm. One kind of light point before before we kind of wrap this up, um, I notice you've got quite a lot of open source projects on GitHub and quite a lot of them are quite popular. Um, go check it out after the after the episode. But you've got this really cool little animated creatures on all of them. So where did they kind of come from? I thought that was quite cool. <laughs> yeah. um, 
So <laughs> I think different people have different opinions on this. It's quite a controversial thing. To be honest, actually, no, that's not true. Nobody has ever uh, raised an issue about any of my logos. I think they just silently resent uh, my graphics. But like my, my kind of early days with open source was I, I really loved the open source community. I loved the idea of it, but I never had the... Um, I never had the drive to get involved in big projects because I just felt like I was going to burden them. And I would describe my relationship with open source as, as kind of ironic. Like my way of dealing with the whole um, imposter syndrome of, you know, you're putting code out, you're, you're basically asking people to give up their time to to look at these things and to, um, if they're going to use them, then they've got to invest the time to uh, to actually test these things out and and understand the the APIs and how it works. So, um, my way of dealing with that was to just goof around. Basically, I'd, I'd make these goofy graphics and stupid names for things, and um, and then I, you know I would post it somewhere, and then I would never talk about it again. Um, and luckily, I mean, there's there's a bit of organic growth on my Go projects. I mean, that was another big thing about moving to Go was that with with a lot of other languages, because there's usually a package manager. There's a process where you you write something just because you know some learning experience you just want to play around, um, and then you finish it. And at that point, I'm basically done with it. Usually, like I'm finished with this thing. Um, but it's nice to to put it online. You can share it with people just because you know what else are you going to do with it? You might as well um, let people use it. Um, but when there's package managers, there's an extra step, which is you you basically have to apply to put this thing out there, and you've got to describe what it is, and you know th there's a, there's just an extra barrier to entry for for getting this thing into people's hands. And I would always just delete stuff. So if I if I put a JavaScript library out there, you know maybe it's something that somebody would want to use. I would put it up, wait for a month, no interest, and then eventually I would just delete it. Um, whereas with Go, you know you, I would put something up and then you know, it's got one star and I can see that one person pulled it. Well, now I can't delete it because somebody's using it and this is the package manager. If I delete the repo now, I'll just ruin their day unless they're vendoring. So um, it kind of forced me, I guess, to to sort of oh, just get over this idea of, you know, you, you're sharing stuff, you you got to leave it there now and support it. But Okay. That's really interesting that the kind of the way that Go handles dependencies just to set everyone on the same page with that in that you actually in, you actually pull projects down from the GitHub or the GitLab repo link when you include them in your project. So that's kind of for, like an easy way to kind of include your project so people can um, use it in their project, I guess. And that's caused you to kind of keep your projects online longer and now they've kind of gained momentum. So it's like a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy that moving to Go has kind of given you. Um, mm. Cool. All right. Um, thanks a lot for joining me today, Ash. I think that was a really interesting chat. Um, thanks, everyone, for listening um, to another episode of the Form Free Engineering Podcast. I hope to see you again soon. Cheers. Thanks. Bye.